Words, they get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle. Merkin fool, like squirtle and cake boo. Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about leaning in and pulling away, feeling hurt, getting angry, and being defensive. I've been thinking about our emotions and our brains, our universal desires for connection and love, and the crazy fact that the evolutionary need for survival can end up being the culprit in challenging our ability to actually connect and love in the most fulfilling way possible. My guest today is Ronald J. Frederick, Ph.D. He is the co-founder of the Center for Courageous Living in Beverly Hills and a senior faculty member of the Accelerated Experiential Dynamic Psychotherapy Institute. He is the best-selling author of Living Like You Mean It and has authored a new book, Loving Like You Mean It, Use the Power of Emotional Mindfulness to Rewire Your Brain and Transform Your Relationships. Welcome, Ron, and thank you so much for joining us today on That Got Me Thinking. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Ellie. It's great to be here. So I want to start with what is a mouthful and also something that that I I realized I didn't know exactly what it was, which is the Accelerated Experiential Dynamic Psychotherapy Institute. Definitely sounds like something I want to be a part of. Um, So maybe you could just start with explaining what it is and how you got involved with it. Sure. It is quite a mouthful. (laughs) We say AEDP for short. Um... Accelerated Experiential Dynamic Psychotherapy is um, a psychotherapy developed by psychologist uh, Dr. Diana Fosha, who um, I had the good fortune to meet and um, be exposed to her work many, many years ago. Uh, I, I shudder to even think 1994 or 1995, just when I was finishing my studies. And, um, you know, I talk about this in my work. I talk about this in my books. Um, So much of the focus is on emotional experience and relational experience. And it's really through our emotional experience and our relational emotional experience uh, that we change and we grow. And so AADP is very much about creating relational safety and working interpersonally so that we, we as clients, can um, do the emotional work that we need to do and have the kind of emotional support we need to be able to heal and move through um, our difficulties, our challenges, our trauma. So it's an attachment-based, neurobiology-informed, emotion-focused psychotherapy. And when you came across it, was it an aha moment? Did you say, okay, this is the missing link? You know, really, absolutely that. Now, very much from a personal and a professional place, my own experience in psychotherapy started when I was in my early 20s, and I was in about a seven-year-long psychotherapy with a very um, caring, older um, man, and, um, but even after seven years, I uh, still was really struggling. The, the therapy helped me uh, gain insight into um, my family experience and how that had impacted me, but I still was really having a hard time um, feeling anxious, uh, questioning or doubting myself, and really, and particularly struggling in relationship. And it got me really wondering, like, you know, so what, like, what's going on here? Like, I've been in therapy for seven years. Like, you know, you'd think, you know, there'd be a bigger payoff at this point. So why am I struggling? Is it just me? Is it the therapy itself? Is there something missing from the therapy? Uh, Now, it was also my experience in therapy that got me interested in eventually becoming a therapist myself. So um, back in uh, when I started graduate school in clinical psychology, uh, I really was kind of on a mission to figure out, you know, what it is, one that was missing from my experience. And somewhere had this belief that therapy really should and could be a transformational experience. 
so I went into graduate school, you know, uh, trying to figure figure this out. And I got interested in, so again, you know, like, let's see, this is 1991, 92, when I went into graduate school. At the time, and it was on the East Coast, and at the time, psychoanalysis and psychodynamic um, work uh, was very much uh, still sort of predominates out there. And I was thinking that um, the key, possibly the key to uh, having a transformational experience in therapy uh, lay in emotion. And I got interested in the short-term dynamic psychotherapies. Um, and so it was through that and then going on internship at Beth Israel Medical Center in New York that, uh, and I was studying that, that someone suggested, one of my, um, who's now a friend of mine and colleague, Gil Tunnel, who was a supervisor at the time, suggested that I go to this um, conference done by these people who had studied short-term dynamic psychotherapy with Davenlu um, up in Montreal, but had sort of broken off and were doing their own thing, and their own thing was much more um, empathy-based uh, and relational. And it's there that I went to this conference that I saw Diana, and she presented her work. And when I say she presented her work, she showed videotapes of her work with a young woman. I'll never forget it. And I watched this session that she showed, and I cried. I was so moved by what I was seeing. I was actually witnessing in the work the emergence of this woman's true self through the support of her therapist. And, you know, I thought to myself at that time, what this is what good therapy can be, and I really want to learn this. At the same time, I think on some level, I was also getting that this is what I also needed for myself to heal. And so it was both of those things. It was an aha professional and an aha um, personal moment for me. Well, it's definitely reasonable to think that that you should, and, and after seven years, expect a, a transformational um, change. Um, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's the piece of traditional psychoanalysis, right? It's part of the structure that, um, you know, Freudian and, and Jungian therapy, that it's about analysis. It's about looking back. It's about looking at those early experiences and how they formed. It's very much an intellectual process. And I think right. if you're an intellectual person, which clearly you are, that grabs you and, and, and you can understand it and it makes sense. And then you're trapped in a sense in the therapy because you are thinking, okay, well, is this just part of the therapy experience? Right. Is it the transference? Is it right. my therapist? Am I just questioning right. it? Because that's right. where I am in the therapy. And so, in a way, yeah. you're stuck. So it's so wonderful that you then got enough courage and, and had that wonderful experience to be able to see, no, there is something different and there's a piece missing. And, and here it is. Um, you wrote your doctoral dissertation on fear of intimacy and relationships. And again, here was something where you clearly intellectually mastered the the topic and understood it. But it, it in itself was not enough for change of behavior. So you then had your personal turning point. Um, what was it that then allowed you to shift and allowed you to recognize the ability for therapy to shift others with this element, this element of the focus on the, the empathy and the emotional experience? You know, um, <clears throat> I think that the most profound thing for me was my personal experience in uh, psychotherapy because I told you about that aha moment and I was just turning 30 at the time and I had finished graduate school and I had gotten a fellowship at Roosevelt Hospital and it was really like a time of... Um, of uh, moving on, of being launched. You know, I had, a, I had a former career in musical theater. I went back to school in my mid-20s, had to finish out my undergrad. And uh, so now, you know, I'm like moving forward in life, right? And uh, at that time, the bottom really fell out for me emotionally. So I discovered, and I write about this in my first book, um, I discovered that 
the busyness of graduate school really helped. Um, and I put quotes around helped mm-hmm. um, me uh, sort of avoid what was an emerging um, anxiety, uh, fear uh, that was very psychologically based about moving, very emotionally um, wrapped up in my past and my feelings about moving forward. And, and I guess so very much, viscerally alive. Yeah. No, totally. Like, I, you know, I was really panicky um, at the time. Uh, and that doesn't so feel good. Is, <laughs> oh, no, not at all. And listen, at the time it was 95, and I'm a gay guy living in New York, and I'm working with people who are dying of AIDS, and you know, my panic and fear went to this is going to happen to me. Now, this is not a, you know, wasn't, you know, it wasn't far-fetched because it was happening, you know, to everyone, but it really wasn't what was going on for me. What was going on for me was much more under the surface, which had everything to do with individuating and moving on in my life and being my own person and emotionally individuating from my family. So, I landed in therapy, and it was that therapy, an AEDP therapy, that really was transformational for me. And go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, it's that aspect that you were experiencing that ends up being the magical key for the success of therapy, that the, the sense that you were focused on one thing and reacting to one thing that you thought was the issue and the problem, whereas really it was something else. Yeah, but Ellie, I spent seven years talking about that in psychotherapy. Yep. So, you know, uh, what happened in this therapy for me was that it was about getting out of my head, mm-hmm. being present with myself and with my therapist emotionally. And that's really where things happen. And that's, uh, you know, that, that basically is now the theme of my life. What do I mean by that? I mean, it's the work that I do. It's what I write about. It's what I continue to work on as a person, like disentangling my nervous system from my early wiring and being able to be present with myself and present with, you know, the people that I love. Um, so, and it was hard, you know, I went into that therapy and man, I discovered just how anxious I was. I mean, I thought I was like, you know, emotional person. I thought, oh, I cry at the movies. I like, you know, I, I, I can get angry. Uh, I come from an Italian family. We're emotional naturally. Right. Um, but what I learned is actually we were loud or that my family was loud, but we weren't necessarily good at doing feelings. and it was really hard to have this very emotionally intense therapist sitting across from me making direct eye contact and wanting to stay out of my thoughts and get into my experience and I'll tell you for the first uh, the large part of the first year I was you know had to tie myself to the chair. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, Hating that therapist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> ultimately, ultimately, things started to melt inside, and which is the wonderful thing because I think we're all wired to, and this is very much a part of ADP, we're all wired to heal, we're all wired, wired to transform, we're all wired to actualize. We just need the right help in order for able for that to be able to happen. And and sticking with it, because that's something I hear you saying that I, I, the spells are going off as you say it, because, you know, you're saying this was hard. It was not comfortable. It did not feel good. Um, and you had to stick with it, and you're still doing it, that it's something that is a skill that you practice and that you continue to maintain and, and execute. Um, so let's talk a little bit about what emotional presence is. You start the book with a uh, stanza from a poem um, from Rainer Maria Reiking. Right. And it's talking about how difficult it is for us to love one another, which seems a little um, 
Very true, and and a little frustrating and crazy in that, you know, I think human beings are rational beings. So here's this thing that we want more than anything that we're wired to do, that we are built for, and yet it's really difficult. And the one thing that we need to be able to master to do it, um, which is emotional presence, is something that for most of us, I think, especially in trying times, is extremely challenging. So maybe you could just start talking to that. Yeah, um, well, I just want to say it's just so nice to talk to you because you're so informed about this and get it. Um, I'm so appreciating the depth of your question. Oh, thank you. Um, so I'm feeling gratitude. I'm wanting to just I'm wanting to just acknowledge that. Thank you. Um, so you know, there's so much in what you just said. I mean, we come into the world ready to connect. And uh, we um, connect emotionally. That's our world when we're infants. And, you know, we don't have language. We just have feelings. And we're wired um, to attach to our caregivers. And there we have, you know, the, from the time we're born, the propensity for emotional connections. You know, that's... Um, our innate destiny in a way. Um, but so much depends on how that goes uh, with our caregivers and, you know, how emotionally mindful or emotionally intelligent they may be, um, how comfortable they are with helping us with our feelings, with also being able to stay present uh, with their own emotional experience, and they all have their own emotional, we all have our own emotional histories. That really has a lot of bearing on um, what it's like for us and what we learn about emotion, what we learn about ourselves, what we really learn about relationships in the world, because that really, that dyadic experience, you know, it's just a few people, our parents, um, maybe there are two, you know, and the few people that are around us, that's, we're getting so much information and learning so much early on really about how things work, how relationships work, and how the world works. So with this imperative to connect, because if we didn't, we wouldn't survive. Right? As human beings, we're incredibly dependent when we're born. And attachment theory shows us that we understand now that the most important thing to us when we're born uh, is that we have a secure connection. Otherwise, we die. So it's really a life and death matter, not to be overstated, because that's how it feels to you know this little infant. And uh, for good reason, because if we weren't wired in that way, evolutionarily, um, we wouldn't survive. So depending on how things go with our caregivers, if they're great, and I don't, shouldn't say great, that's, quali- that's um, not the way I want to put it. If, you know, like I said, if they're emotionally mindful and able to show up, we develop a secure relationship. If they're reliable, they're, they're there when we're in distress we develop a relationship security and we also develop the capacity to use our feelings, uh, to put them to good use, to be able to communicate, to relate, to be close. Um, That, you know, is the case for a fair amount of people, like about, you know, close to half of uh, us, 50%. But the other close to 50% don't have those kinds of experiences. Now we can have traumatic experiences, big T trauma, but we can also have small T trauma experiences. And those are the experiences that many, many of us have. Maybe we have an anxious parent or a parent has their own emotional history or they're not so comfortable with closeness or they can be there sometimes, but then at other times um, they're distracted or overcome. Um, They're not reliably there. This is anxiety provoking for a child. And what we do is we learn to adapt. You know, we figure out, how we need to show up, we figure out what parts of ourselves we need to um, exclude, uh, you know, what parts of us cause people to sort of move away, what emotions particularly, and we're very, very much shaped by that. And all of that experience that we have 
it becomes our relational software. It gets coded into our brain. It's stored implicitly, which means it's not something we're consciously aware of. And we move forward in the world running on this software. So again, if you had a good experience, you've got good software and you're set up and you're good to go. But if you didn't, you have software that ultimately you get out in the world and we're having, you know, trying to have an adult relationship and we start running into problems. And there's the quote, you know, that starts off the book, which is speaking to how loving someone can be really hard, can be hard because if we can't come to the experience wholeheartedly, it's hard to make it work. And we can't when we've been constrained um, and misshapen by our early experience. So the key to being able to get ourselves to free ourselves up from that is to grow our capacity to be emotionally mindful, to attune to what's happening for us in ways that we're likely not even aware of. I mean, you can't really change something that you're not aware of, right? Um, and so therein lies the key to um, emo emotional mindfulness really is the key to help us begin to turn things around. So. That's one reason why it's really hard to be emo that's the main reason why it's really hard to be emotionally present because of the ways in which we've been shaped and our nervous system has been shaped. Okay, so you've made me so optimistic that the when you were giving the statistics I was like, "Oh, is it like a 90/10 and 80/20?" I love that it's 50/50 like that is fantastic news. Um and and also um I just want to point out the concept that because as you were speaking, I was thinking about this, like, we are not messed up, like, there is nothing wrong mm -hmm. with us, our, mm -hmm. our systems were doing exactly what they needed to do to operate right. at our highest capacity and to do the thing that we were meant to do, which is to connect and to survive and to create the best relationships possible with these people we were interacting with from birth. And so that our brains were wired, our software was wired in the most efficient and capable way possible um, for that situation. So we're not screwed up, like we are operating exactly as we should. It's right. just that that software becomes outdated, as I think it's mentioned right. in your book jacket. And so we just need to update it like we need a new system right. you know we can't keep operating from that same system um and so i just think that is extremely encouraging it's a it really is my message the message of the book i so appreciate it that you're highlighting it um you know we're human beings are uh, we're, we're adaptive we adapt and we did what we needed to do um, to make the situation work. Um, and, and, but the truth of the matter is, is that our software isn't the whole of us. Um, it isn't necessarily our truth. And it's just how we've been impacted and how we've been shaped. And this is such an important point because we feel like we're fucked up, right? Mm -hmm. You know, there's something wrong with us. Excuse the French. Um, and, you know, when people come up and say, you know, come to me all the time and they feel ashamed, they feel guilty, um, they feel broken, um, that there's something really wrong with them. And from the get-go, you know, my message is, no, this is just how you adapted and this isn't all of you um, and yes that's the positive thing which is our brain was wired in a, a certain way but it continues to be malleable and through new experience we can rework that wiring and we can free ourselves up so that our true self our whole self can be integrated and come online and we can live from that place so let's talk a little bit about the distinction between a habitual emotional reaction to a situation um, and 
our emotional truth. And so how we can get to a place where we can discern the two, because that's a little bit tricky. You know, the first step is a lot of people aren't even feeling the first emotion of their habitual response, right? And the emotion attached to it. And then if they are, they may get stuck there, right? Oh, I'm going to really express my anger. I'm going to really express my my shame or my fear or whatever it is I'm, I'm reacting to in the moment. But underneath that lies an emotional truth that is maybe even more, foreign or more uncomfortable um, right. to acknowledge. So so what does that like be, look like being able to recognize the distinction between the two? Right. And this is such a really, really good point. Um, yeah, what happens is we develop defenses on early on um, to uh, avoid the discomfort that comes up with having certain feelings. So let's take an example. So, uh, you know, you feel uh, vulnerable or afraid as a child, and it doesn't go well. Uh, It actually, you know, overwhelms mom or dad. Um, And so part of the way that you adapt is, well, I need to be, maybe I need to be strong, or I'm going to not show that feeling, right, you know. Um, so, which would be more of an avoidance strategy to deactivate what's going on inside. Well, we move forward in life and we, this is what we do. We start to feel vulnerable. We start to feel afraid. We want to reach out to our partner, but instead we dismiss it or we shut down. We pull away. There's distance. That's a defense. That's a defense against a deeper need of wanting to connect, wanting connection or wanting reassurance of feeling afraid of feeling vulnerable. So, but we don't know it. We think, you know, well, this is just the way that I am, you know, or we rationalize and we say things like it's not a big deal. We anticipate that the other is going to have a bad reaction because that's what our brain does. Our brain records uh, this information early on And then it anticipates that this is how it's going to go. I'm going to get ridiculed or I'm going to get um, dismissed or the person's not going to be there for me or they're going to be, they're not going to like me or they're not going to think I'm cool or whatever it is. So the process of um, beginning to change. So I outline a four-step process and loving like you mean it. And you're pointing out the first step, Ellie, which has to do with recognizing and naming that I've gotten triggered in some way. So how do we know that, um, you know, something is going on for us that we uh, are, have gotten triggered in some way, that there's maybe going, more going on below the surface than we realize? Two things. One of them is that we feel anxious on some level, and it's the anxiety that actually prompts us to defend, right? So if the feeling was fear or vulnerability, like I said, it gets associated with something dangerous. So then it brings on um, a sense of anxiety or fear. And then we have a defense that comes online because if, 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 if it's dangerous, then we're going to want to avoid it. So how does anxiety show up for us? Um, all of this starts with really attuning to what's going on in our bodies because the body really, you know, tells us a lot. We try and stay in our heads <laughs> And discomfort or anxiety shows up in our body, some kind of constriction, a need to move, a stirring, whatever it may be. So if we start by, um, if we start by turning inward and getting out of our head and noticing what's happening for us inside, beginning to notice what's happening for us inside, we start to see the different ways in which or maybe feeling uncomfortable or afraid. The other piece of it is that um, we get defensive. And, um, you know, we all know that we have defenses and we, uh, at different times we may need to avoid our feelings or put things aside, not deal with something particularly in the moment at work, deal with it later when you get home. So we have defenses that help us, you know, um, shelf things for a moment and then we can come back to them but we also have when we over rely on defenses then we get into problems so 
How do you know that you're being defensive? Well, generally, when you're running into problems and things aren't going smoothly, chances are in some way you're probably defending. Maybe you're getting angry and attacking with your partner. Does that ever get you to a better place? It's only constructive if it does. But we all know that we keep repeating some of these behaviors because they're wired in. That's what brings a lot of people into therapy. That's what people talk about in terms of having conflict. It's repeated. It happens over and over again. That's a sign that there are probably defenses involved and that you have other feelings that are going on under the surface that if you were able to tap into them and begin to make use of them, and share them in your relationship, things would likely move in another direction. So you point out a, another great clue in the book, and that that is that it happens so quickly, that if you find yourself responding right away, um, right. that that's something to notice, like if you are having an exaggerated response, or a dramatic response, or a, a strong response right away, that it, it, it it's worth looking at to, to take a moment yeah. and look back and stop. And, and so I want to talk yeah. about that more. But before we do something else, you said about, you know, we, we learn to not pay attention to the physical messages that are getting sent and the emotional messages that are getting sent in our bodies um, because we're living so much in our head. But from the time we're kids, we're pretty much told not to pay attention to how we feel. You know, are we hungry? Are we tired? Do we want to not be sitting in this chair at school for eight hours straight? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, that's Mm -hmm. what we are taught. Ignore and push past and suppress. And so what's happening to us when we are choosing continually to do that, to continually suppress and, and not to process and to ignore? Well, we know what happens. People get People have a hard time. Now, you know, what uh, I'll say more about that mm-hmm. in a moment, but, you know, what you're talking about is very much, is very true for many of us. But fortunately, um, is it just the 50%? Are, <laughs> no, what I was going to say is fortunately, there's more awareness about mindfulness, and I'm hearing more and more about kids learning about, um, you know, how to regulate their feelings, how to use mindfulness. And so I, and I just think to myself, God, if like that had been something that I was learning in school early on, life really would um, be different. But your I, point I want you, but I'm going to interrupt one. you one more time because I want you, I came across that word in the book and I want you to clarify it because when you say regulate your emotions, you uh-huh. don't mean it in the way that I was just talking about. It doesn't mean to control or suppress. Right. Um, right. It, it, it's right. very different. And so maybe just clarify well, that. So I think it's super I important. I appreciate that because that's an excellent point. You know, what you're talking about is you have to sit in a desk all day. You're learning how to control yourself. And on some level, that's important, but regulating your feelings is something different. And most of many of us don't learn to do that. What what regulate what we're talking about, what I'm talking about when I talk about regulating your feelings is being able to feel and move through what's happening for you, for us emotionally in a way that's manageable. And all feelings um, need some form of regulation. Even excitement and happiness um, need some form of regulation so we can move them, move through them in a helpful way. I, I point out those feelings because people immediately think of anger and you have to, you know, regulate your anger. But regulating your feelings is really, I like the word abide with your feelings. I talk about, use a water metaphor, which is about learning how to sail and move with the movement of your feelings. And it's really an internal process. We all can have our feelings just, I'm sitting on the couch right now as I'm talking to you. I can feel my anger. I I don't feel it at the moment, but I could be feeling my anger or other feelings sitting here we're a vessel in which these things energetically can start in one place and move through us. And that's really, that's what we learn to do when we have emotionally mindful uh, parents 
who dyadically, through being with us, help us to learn how to manage our feelings and move through them. That's what it means to regulate them. You say in the book, um, one of the headings of the chapters is stop, drop, and stay. And you then talk about, which I loved, um, and then you talk about leaning into your distress rather than pulling away from it, and that that actually is what helps decrease it. And I think that that probably seems counterintuitive to to people at first, um, especially with anger, (laughs) right? But but yet it, it really is is not because it's it's how the feelings work right you know they're going to tap they're going to knock harder and if we aren't listening they're going to start kicking down the door um and, and not dissipate whereas when we lean into them and allow ourselves to experience them then they're like okay job done i can go now right right you know the reality is that our feelings don't last a long time i mean we know this because everyone's sort of chasing happiness. You know, they want to get it back or they want it to like be around all the time, which is impossible. Emotion, you know, the actual wavelength of an emotion is really just a few seconds, right? Um, that's a, like, you know, a wave of sadness, a wave of anger. Um, we certainly, you know, if we're grieving, we might have many waves of sadness. But the actual feeling itself doesn't last very long. What happens is we do all these things to sort of avoid um, or um, uh, cut off our emotional experience. And what's happening is this energetic wave isn't allowed to sort of move through, through us and come to completion. When we learn how to be present with it, that's actually what we're learning to do, to feel it move through us. And when it moves through us, we get the information we need from it. We get, can get guidance from it. We can get the energy we need to do whatever it is we need to do. And um, in general, our core feelings are there to be helpful to us. So, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to ha- ha- need to happen. It doesn't necessarily go on for a long time, but it's all the stuff that we are unconsciously doing that keeps feelings hanging around, that keeps us in an angry place, keeps us in an irritable place, keeps us in an anxious place. And it's aversive, right? We don't like it. When something's aversive, we want to pull away from it. But so much of the work that I'm doing with people and with myself is just staying present, breathing through it, allowing for it. And that's one of the weird things about anxiety, which is the more... It's Jung who said, what you resist persists. And what I find in my work is when we're able to sort of regulate ourselves and stay with the experience, it actually moves to a different place. That's how it's supposed to go. So we begin by recognizing we've been triggered, and then we slow down and we can um, observe and then name our emotional experience and and maybe be reminded of of a pattern or a habit and then we lean into the the distress of of the emotion or or whatever the emotion may be we lean in instead of pulling away um what's next yeah so you're doing such a wonderful job of working through the steps so the four-step process that i talk about on loving like you mean it we start with recognizing and naming what's happening for us. I'm getting triggered. I'm acting defensively. Something's going on. We then stop, drop, and stay, which is the step that you mentioned before, which is to stop, slow down, and go inside. You know, the point that you made a little while ago, Ellie, is that, you know, we respond so quickly. So we have a stimulus, something happens, and then we respond really quickly. That can serve us really well, you know, if we're really in danger, uh, you know, buses, you know, cars coming down the street and we need to get out of the way. But um, it can also be problematic for us if we're responding in ways that are defensive in our emotional relationships. Here's the thing. We can stretch the space between stimulus and response. And that's really what all the four steps are about and being emotionally mindful is about. When we slow down and we turn inward, we start to stretch the space between 
getting activated and then we can notice it and we can name it. And then if we slow ourselves down and we go inside and we turn inward, which is stop, drop and stay, we can get in touch with what's happening on a deeper level for us. Now, it may not happen right away. Uh, it may be something you work on for a long time, but over time, we start to become more familiar with our experience or our deeper experience of our anger or our sadness or our fear, our vulnerability. So when we stop, drop, and stay, we make contact with it. We begin to move through that, and then we can figure out where to go from there. And that's step three, which is pause and reflect. So as we're doing the work to be with our feelings, we then pause and reflect and say, you know, what are you telling me? What am I needing? What's going on here? And we can also reflect on and how, what's the best way for me to move forward in order for those things and for, and that's going to be helpful to myself, to my partner, to my relationship. So pausing and reflect Pausing and reflecting after we have, have an experience allows us then to make sense of it and to make good use of it. Okay, and then comes the second hard part. <laughs> maybe it's the third. <laughs> maybe the hardest part of all. Um, <laughs> your book follows four people through transformation, and, and I think Troy offers a great example of how it gets put all together, um, the developing uh -huh. awareness, the leaning in, and then this next tricky part of expressing um, his and our feelings. And then the next part, because you're not even done then there, of then working things through to completion, because I thought the examples were fantastic as far as, you know, you're not done yet. Um, yes, you felt it. Yes, you stayed with it. Yes, you expressed it. Bravo, 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 really hard. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. but, but you haven't in, in a number of the scenarios, he hadn't really um, even though at times he thought he was done with it, he realizes, because he's still sticking with it, that he hadn't worked it through um, to completion. And yeah. so maybe we could talk a little bit about what it looks like when that, that partner or the other person you're engaged with um, is is involved in, in the moment of the process. Um, and, and the beginning fact that you put out there is that once we've altered our behavior and once we've stopped our habitual responses, that us just changing the, the steps of the dance that we're doing um, start and the way that we're engaging differently starts to alter the other person's actions and reactions as well, which that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. We, we so, get something for um, free there. Yeah. Say that again. I said we get something for free there. Like, you know, we do something and then automatically, you know, their behavior adjusts, which is nice. Well, often, oftentimes that can happen. I mean, not always, right? Uh, um, and and, and, I'm gonna, and yeah, let's talk about that because not that was something you talk about. Not always. And I think that's important to know too, right? We can be doing everything right and, and maybe they will or won't. Both things are important. One is to know that we have the power to, um, when we can bring ourselves differently to the relationship, that's a powerful thing and can really cause shifts. When we lean in in a softer way, when we're not being defensive, when we're able to show up, show our vulnerability, um, that sets a different tone. And it's also an invitation and presents an opportunity for our partners to, and a challenge in a way for them to show up differently. Now, it may not happen the first time you do it, or it may not happen every time you do it. And, you know, relationships are a back and forth process. And that's what I talk about in step four, which is um, mindfully relate that everything that we're learning about, about recognizing and attuning to and managing what's going on inside of us comes to bear when we're with our partners. Because as soon as we start to relate, you know, they may say something that like then triggers us again, or, you know, um, we start to feel angry or we start to feel ashamed. So what happens? Well, we're still need to be working and mining sort of these principles around listening to ourselves, <laughs> knowing, uh, you know, what's happening, how do I regulate myself? It's a lot of work, you know, because we're trying to get our brain to work in a different way. So, you know, 
Um, what I talk about in step four, we use the um, symbols of the, uh, the different colors of a um, traffic light, right? You know, there's the red light, which is stop, and green light, go, and then yellow light. And we pay attention to what I'm talking about is paying attention to those signs. Are we getting a green light? Are we getting a red light? And are we getting yellow light, both within ourselves and with our partners? Does our partner become defensive? That's a red light. We're not going to be able to go any further. What can we do about that? Um, how might we respond? We might say, you know, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to make you defensive. Or, you know, when you start to talk to me like that, it's hard for me to sort of stay centered. Um, you know, this whole back and forth where we're trying to move to a more green lighted place between the two of us. And oftentimes in relationship, we're not paying attention to the process. We're paying attention, by that I mean what's going on internally. We're paying attention to, you know, he said, he said, he said, she said, whatever it is, and we're getting triggered. That's where um, we start to gain some control is when we pay attention to the process. What do I mean by that? What's happening inside of me? What do I see happening for my partner? How is that influencing the two of us right here in the moment? So if we're stopping and saying, okay, well, I'm starting to feel um, anxious or um, I feel like, you know, I'm starting to like close off um, or when I hear you say that, it sounds to me, you know, like, you know, you're upset with me, whatever it is, then we're starting to make the process, ex process explicit and that can really help to keep things in a more regulated space and one that's more constructive for us to be able to move through. There's a, another element, I think, that's important to clarify the distinction around um, mind, the idea of mindfulness and that the idea of, I think for many people, they think of mindfulness means being calm all the time, you know, that we, yeah. we take a breath to then be right. calm, to go internally, to quiet, to quiet the mind, to quiet our, our responses. And I think it's, it's so important. Um, and you talk about it a great deal throughout the book, but just to, to point out again, that that's not what you're talking about as far as no. as mindfulness and it it it's no. it's distinguishing between the authentic core emotional response that's that's true versus the one that may come out instead of that because it's easier to navigate this is such an excellent point ellie i really appreciate you bringing it up um and people often have a mis misconception of what mindfulness is. I have a client um, that I'm seeing who says that his partner practices mindful avoidance. <laughs> <laughs> At least it's he mindful. Uses, <laughs> he uses mindfulness in a way in which, you know, we would say spiritual avoidance, uh, in which I'm not going to be affected by anything, you know, and I'm not going to, I'm going to be above it all. That's really not what it's about. Um, John Kabat-Zinn, uh, you know, the, uh, who developed a mindfulness-based stress reduction and is a leader in the field of mindfulness, uh, has a, um, a definition of mindfulness that goes something like about it's about paying attention on purpose in a non-judgmental way to our moment-by-moment um, -moment experience as it's unfolding. And so what in part he's talking about is that we bring our observer online. That's a part of our brain. Our emotional, the emotional part of our brain is our limbic system. You know, that's the feeling activating part of our brain, which is important and we need to be able to work with it. But part of the way that we manage that and get a little distance, and I don't mean distance by cutting ourselves off, I mean by being able to see what's happening for us is bringing our observer online. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about paying attention. And when I say going inward, attuning to what's happening inside of us, that's all about getting our observer online, watching what's happening, sense, seeing what's happening. We sense it, we feel it, we note it. 
And then we have a brain that's more integrated, that's working together, where one part, one part of the brain, the limbic system, isn't taking over things and running the show. That's what happens when we're defensive. That's what happens when we're not being, when we're not being mindful. So when we're mindful, we're feeling and we're feeling our experience and we're noting it and we're observing it and we're naming it. And we're going, oh, look, wow, I'm really getting activated, right? You know, oh, I'm getting activated. Okay, what do I need to do to sort of like calm that down a little bit? Okay, I'm going to take a breath. And what do I notice happening? Oh, I noticed that. Okay, so my chest is opening up a little bit. That's good. That's mindfulness. That's the internal process. And so it's about being with, experiencing, and having a rich experience, but being able to work with it, allow it to unfold, and um, make sense of it, and be, be, be able to make good use of it. And to that's be, what I... Go ahead. Yeah, that's well, what I call emotional mindfulness. That's what it's about, being emotionally mindful. And to be able to react to what's happening in the here and now, what's relevant, versus reacting to something that's no longer relevant from the past, that's just a result of our previous wiring. You, you right. Just, yeah, you describe this as... Yeah, because that's, that's when you slow down, you see, oh, I'm getting activated. And that's telling you that something, oftentimes telling you that something old is getting stirred up for you. And that's the key, because maybe something new is pissing you off or <laughs> upsetting you. And, and that's and, possible, too. And that's great to react to that in, in, in whatever way. <laughs> right. Um, right. You describe this as the core of our work to free ourselves from a fear that is no longer warranted and reclaim our innate emotional capabilities so that we can have better relationships. Mm-hmm. I'd say mm-hmm. that just sums it all up in a nutshell. We just need to it's- remind ourselves of that day in and day out. It really does. You know, we're not infants anymore. Our relationships are not going to fall apart. You know, um, we're, our partners are not going to die or desert us, you know, if we show up. I'm, this doesn't mean we become, you know, emotionally out of control, but it means that the parts of us that uh, we have felt we have had to hide or get distorted actually are not as threatening as our nervous system tells us that they are. And when we can learn to move through that and begin to expose um, different parts of ourselves that we need in order to be able to have a, a good life, in order to be able to have a fulfilling relationship, we start to hold that fear up to the light of day and it starts to lose, you know, its power over us. But that only happens when we're willing to... Um, when we face it, when we are able to see it, and when we have the courage to um, open up and move forward, you know, you can't learn that there's no monster in the closet unless you turn the light on. You begin your book with a quote from Buddha, in the end, only three things matter, how much you loved, how gently you lived, and how gracefully you let go of things not meant for you. And I was thinking, this may be the basis for our next conversation, (laughs) it'll be our starting point, is how we know um, when it's time to let go. Um, If if you have moved through and you're doing this work and you're still not getting what you want, um, uh, but I'm I'm jumping ahead of myself. So the first step um, is reading Loving Like You Mean It by uh, Ron Frederick. And thank you so much for the book. It really is incredible. Um, And and thank you so much for joining us on the show. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, well, thanks, Ron. Yeah, It's a wonderful, wonderful Um, having you on the show and, and reading the book. So thanks. Thank you so much. It's lovely to connect. Okay, bye. You take care. Bye. Take care. Thank you.